Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Such beautiful words, and so true. Jesus, the Son of God, went to the cross in our place as the perfect final sacrifice for our sins. That's what we remember on Good Friday. That's why we're here tonight. Jesus knew that going to the cross was his ultimate purpose, the reason he came to live among us. But even though he knew this was God's will, even though this was the event his entire life was leading up to, that did not make it easy. Of course not. In his last hours on earth, Jesus wrestled with doing what God asked of him. And seeing that should just make us love him even more. In his last hours, we get to see the human side of Jesus. We feel his fear and sadness, and we're struck by his love for the Father. And seeing Jesus go through this should reassure us because we can relate to feeling anxious and overwhelmed, especially when God asks us to do something that we do not want to do. But as Jesus is being led to the cross on this last day, his example gives us a path to follow when God calls us to do something hard for him. And even though Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice, we can all relate to facing a difficult situation. Maybe you're in a relationship right now that's just really challenging. And God is asking you to stay in it, even though everything in you wants to leave. Or maybe it's your job. The work is just hard and the culture is tearing you down, but God is asking you to stay and to be a light to those around you. Maybe God is calling you to full-time ministry. Or if you're already in full-time ministry, maybe God is calling you out of it to do something else. And in either case, the idea of making that change is just overwhelming. Maybe it's a health issue you're facing. The doctor delivered a difficult diagnosis and now you're facing surgery, a long recovery, or something worse. If you're not in the middle of something now, it's likely you will be soon. God disciplines those he loves and he often does that by placing us in challenging circumstances that stretch us and shape us. I know for myself, when that happens, my first reaction is usually, God, why are you doing this? Then my second response is, just stop. I don't want to go through this. And then often there's no response at all. And it feels like God is distant, silent. Maybe he doesn't care. But because of Good Friday, we know that is not true. And we know that because of what Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane. And because of what he did for us on the cross Jesus experienced complete separation from the Father so we would never have to. He was rejected so we could be restored. I'm going to read from Matthew 26, but here's what's happening in the passage. Here's the context. Jesus is spending his last hours with the disciples. He celebrated Passover with them, the Last Supper. Then he washed their feet to give them one more lesson in what it means to be a servant leader. 
Judas leaves to betray Jesus to the Pharisees. And then Jesus and the remaining disciples head out to the garden so Jesus can pray. Let's pick up the story in verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is God's word. In order to appreciate what's happening here at the end of Jesus' ministry, let's take a quick look at back when it first started. When Jesus turns 30, John the Baptist begins preaching in the wilderness, telling anyone who'll listen that there's someone in Israel who's so much greater than John. I am not even worthy to untie his sandals, he says. When Jesus shows up to be baptized, John says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Then he baptizes him. As Jesus comes out of the water, a voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Right after that, Jesus is taken into the wilderness by the spirit to be tempted by Satan. Now Satan tries to get Jesus to doubt himself and to move him off of his mission, but Jesus does not give in. The third temptation is so interesting though. Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in all their splendor, and he says, I can give all these to you. Just worship me first. Satan knew that Jesus came to save the world, so he's offering a shortcut, an easier way to achieve what Jesus wants without all the pain and suffering and death. Of course, Jesus says no. But now, here at the end of his ministry, now that he's on the way to the cross, the memory of that offer must be haunting him because we see him wrestling with the temptation to find another way. He leaves the disciples and he takes Peter and James and John, his three closest friends, he says, guys, I need you to stay with me. This is too much for me right now and I need to know that you're just close by. I need to know you're right there. Then it says, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. The Greek term here implies shock and horror. It's almost like a panic attack. And then he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. These are strong words. 
Jesus has known for a long time that he was going to die. He even knew what kind of death he would face. He's talked about that with the disciples before. But now here he is, shocked and troubled and panicking, overwhelmed to the point of death. What's going on here? What's happening? The key is in the next verse. Verse 39, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken away from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. See, it's not death that Jesus was afraid of. It's the cup. It's the cup and all that comes with it. In the Old Testament, the scriptures that Jesus had, the cup refers to the wrath of God. The judgment he will bring because of our sin. Job wrote about God's coming punishment when he said, let their own eyes see their destruction. Let them drink the cup of the wrath of the Almighty. And Isaiah talks about the cup of his wrath, the bowl of staggering. We're not comfortable talking about God's wrath. It seems unfair. It feels like God is just being cranky and spiteful. But when we understand his complete holiness, how morally pure and completely good he is, we can begin to understand why he reacts the way he does to sin. Sin is real. And when we come face to face with God's holiness, we become painfully aware of how real our sin is. We are as completely sinful as God is perfectly and completely holy. Sin is not something we just do. It's part of who we are. It's that crimson stain. It's in our nature, and there is nothing we can do on our own to change that. And when we see that, we can begin to understand his wrath. Our sin brings his wrath because he is holy, he's morally perfect, and he can't allow sin to continue. We are the problem. Here's how scholar Leon Morris describes it. God's wrath is his strong and settled opposition to all that is evil. It is a burning zeal for the right coupled with a perfect hatred for everything that is evil. And all that wrath, everything God feels against sin was in the cup that Jesus was looking into. The cup that belonged to me and belonged to you. But if we drank it, it would totally destroy us. No, only Jesus could drink that cup. Only he could take the punishment of God's wrath for all the sins of the world. That's what he was faced with. And the idea of that just crushed him, overwhelmed him with shock and panic. The great theologian Jonathan Edwards described the scene this way. His agony was caused by a vivid, bright, full, immediate view of the wrath of God. The Father, as it was, as it were, set the cup down before him that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. Jesus knows that he's not just facing physical death and torture. He's about to experience God's complete wrath against all the evil and sin that ever existed. And as horrible as that is, it actually gets worse. Jesus will have to do this on his own without his father's help or presence. Let that 
sink in for a minute. Jesus, God the Son, has had a perfect, intimate relationship with God the Father since eternity past. They've never been apart. He's never done anything without the Father's presence to guide him. There's never been a moment when they were not in perfect harmony, but that will all change when Jesus takes the cup and goes to the cross. In a few hours, Jesus will be nailed to the cross to pay the penalty for my sin and for your sin, and he'll do it alone. Facing his father's wrath without his father's presence to comfort him. That's why he cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries out to his father at the moment he needs him most and there is no response. So, it's the junior year of college for me. And I decide that I've had enough. I'm done. I'm done with school. It's not what I want to do. I am dropping out. It's a true story. I get in my car to drive home, and several hours later, I pull into the driveway. My father opens the door, and he says, what are you doing here? And I said, Dad, I'm done with school. I am dropping out. He looked at me and said, no, you're not. (laughs) And I said, yes, I am. To which he replied, get in the house. Now, you have to understand something. My father was the only one in his family to go to college. And he went nights after working a long day. He had to put himself through school. So he had no idea why I would want to drop out of school when somebody else was paying for it. Well, we locked in a room for hours, going back and forth. It was ugly. And I don't know, honestly, I don't know where the rest of my family was. I think my mom said to my brothers and sisters, oh, we are out of here. Let's let them figure this out. (laughs) I don't remember eating or sleeping. I just remember my dad and I going back and forth. Well, he finally said to me, Ted, you have to trust me. Finishing school is the best path for you. Well, as much as I disagreed, as much as I wanted to quit school, I had too much love and respect for my father to go against him. And I went back to college the next day. So here in the garden, Jesus is wrestling with what he's being asked to do. He's working it out with his father in prayer. And look at what happens next. Verse 42. Jesus went away a second time and prayed, my father... If it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. He's been praying for over an hour at this point. And look at the shift in his attitude. In his first prayer, Jesus is saying, I do not want to do this. This is too hard. You're asking too much. If there is any other way to achieve your plan, please do not make me drink this cup. Now look at his second prayer. Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, if I have to do this, then may your will be done. Do you feel that? Do you feel the change there? 
He's no longer saying, I don't want to do this. Now he's saying, if you want me to do this, help me do it well. John Piper points out, Jesus did not go on praying that he would not have to drink the cup. He went on praying for success in drinking it. And that's a great model for us to follow when we pray. Jesus is so raw and honest here. He starts out praying, praying, I can't do this. I don't want to do this, but I want to do what you want, not what I want. I want to do it well. We need to pray like that all the time. Don't worry about saying the right words or about making God upset. Just be honest and lay it all out before him. He can take it. But hear this, hear this. If you're going through a difficult situation right now, by all means, ask God to take you out of it. But if you've been praying that for a while and there's been no change, then try shifting your prayers like Jesus did. I love what Tim Keller says here. Jesus knows that the purpose of prayer is not to bend God's will to ours. The purpose of prayer is to bend our will to fit God's so that you can rest in his wisdom. So if you're going through a difficult situation and there's been no change, try going to God and say, Father, if this is what you want me to go through, If this is where you want me right now, then I submit to your will, your good and perfect will, and I ask you to give me success in doing what you are asking me to do. That is a prayer I can get behind. Amen. Jesus prays that same prayer one more time. He's face down in the garden, working all this out with his father, saying, help me, help me. And when he's done, he gets up and he heads to the cross, taking the punishment for my sin and for your sin, knowing full well that he would experience God's wrath completely on his own, abandoned by his father. And he's doing all that for us because he loves us. He went to the cross knowing he would be rejected by the Father, and he did that so we could be restored to him. Nothing could be worse than being separated from God. Jesus knew that. He saw a glimpse of it in the garden, and he experienced a complete separation from God on the cross, and he did that for you because he loves you, and he never wants you to be alone. In a few minutes, we're going to take communion together. And as we prepare our hearts for that, there are two things I want you to be thinking about. First, never forget how much Jesus loves you. Every day, try to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is Christ's love for you. And never think that will change. It won't Jesus literally went through hell and he never let go of you. If he took all of God's wrath, all of the punishment meant for us and he still loves us, do you think there is anything you can do to make him love you less? No, no. Jesus loves you because he loves you and that will never change. Second, whatever situation you are facing now, whatever God is asking you to do, remember that you are not facing it alone. 
God is right here with you. Jesus went to the cross and faced his worst struggle alone, losing the presence of God. And because he did that for us, we face our struggles with him in the full, complete presence of our Heavenly Father. 